Hello everybody, Andrew here. What you're about to hear previously appeared as an episode of my other show, The Palace of Glittering Delights, but in more expanded form. When it was discovered that Bill did have a copy of the recording for the second session that we did, The Train Job and Bushwhacked, we decided to carry on with the Firefly podcast Keep Flying with the triumvirate of myself, Paul Spataro and Pastor Bill Robinson. Although, to fit more in the Firefly mould, he would be Shepherd Bill Robinson. That kind of makes more sense. So... It was then decided that I would re-edit the episode of Palace that was the discussion of the pilot for Firefly, Serenity, originally just a one-off when we thought we'd lost the audio of the second recording, into an episode of this show, Keep Em Flying, a Firefly podcast, here on the Two True Freaks Network. As I say, this originally appeared on Palace, it was more expanded. The major difference is I've just cut off all the extraneous chat that was nothing really to do with Firefly, um, because we felt that the feed wouldn't really be appropriate without a discussion of the pilot. So if you've heard this before, I still hope you enjoy it, and if you haven't, keep flying. We've got a job, don't much care how it's done. Talking about every episode of Firefly, here on TwoTrueFreaks.com. Enjoy. Heroics, a brand new podcast on twotruefreaks.com. Keep flying, a Firefly podcast. We aim to do the impossible, cover every episode of Joss Whedon's science fiction space opera Western, and that makes us mighty. We found as fine a crew as ever populated the podcasting verse. I told them I had a job. They said, yes. Didn't much care what it was. I'm Andrew Leyland. I fought for the independence. Maybe in the losing side, not so sure it was the wrong one. I'm joined by a man far too pretty to die, Mr. Paul Spataro, and last but by no means least, a man with a mighty fine hat, Mr. Sean Engel. Hello. Hey. How's it going? Uh, it's tickety boo. How are you two today? I'm doing I just good. love when you're tickety boo. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even it's know what shiny. that means. I only know what it means because we've had this conversation before. <laughs> I must have been asleep for that conversation. You were probably very much asleep. <laughs> I think that may have been a Facebook in, uh, private message conversation. I, I think it may not have been actually allowed. Oh, right. Okay. So fair enough. We were just chatting over Facebook. Well, in this inaugural episode, I have conned these two gentlemen into watching Firefly What? One of whom has seen it before, one of whom has never watched it. See if you can guess which one. We'll leave that to the audience. Firefly was Joss Whedon's third series after Buffy and Angel and was the product of a number of different inspirations. First off was Michael Shara's novel, The Killer Angels, chronicling the Battle of Gettysburg in the American Civil War. And Whedon wanted to follow them that lost the war, the people on the outskirts of civilization, eking out a living on the frontier. He decided to marry this to a science fiction framework with the idea of following a Han Solo type character if he never actually met Obi-Wan and Luke in the canteen. The first one we'll be looking at tonight is the pilot episode of the series, Serenity, written and directed by Joss Whedon. Unusually for a pilot, Fox didn't air this first. They aired it last. 
and asked Whedon and writer Tim Minear to quickly come up with another episode that they would were, uh, they would err first, which we'll be looking at next time. Did you? Uh, I've already said one of you didn't watch it before, but uh, the one that did, which was Sean. So if you guessed Sean in the pool, well done. Did you watch this <laughs> come one? Come collect your winnings. Yeah, we've not decided what those winnings are yet. It's we have to go through the uh, Demonsecor Bank to uh, to see if we can acquire some money to uh, pay the winners. Uh, All right, okay, so they're not getting anything then. No, they should not. just submit their vouchers and then we'll take it from there. Mm-hmm. They get this podcast for free. That's true. That's the prize. And I, I think that's I think that's more than anyone could ever ask for. I think so too. Did you watch this one at all, Sean? No, actually, I didn't. Uh, I might as well. The since since we're talking about it, I might as well tell you I, I'm approaching this as not really uh, a, I know you're a real fan of Joss Whedon stuff and that you really enjoy it. I I kind of have this thing with Joss Whedon where I like his stuff, I like his writing, but it's hard for me sometimes to disconnect the person Joss Whedon from his material. Sometimes Joss Whedon gets under my skin. But most of the time, his shows and his, uh, you know, the stuff that he puts out is really rather entertaining. I never got into Buffy. I never got into Angel. I never got into Dollhouse. Um, I only watched this, surprisingly, after I watched the Serenity movie. And I was so captured by the actual movie version that I went back and watched this and was really impressed with this. I haven't rewatched this since the original time that I've watched it. So doing this show is kind of giving me a chance to look at the, the, the Firefly universe and look at the Firefly show again to see if it really holds up as well as it did when I first watched it. Joss Whedon's gone on obviously to do some big things with Marvel, helming the first two Avengers movies, uh, working specifically on the uh, new uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. show. And in general, I've really liked those movies. I think the Avengers movies were some of the best Marvel movies they put out. I have kind of gotten left behind on the Ages of S.H.I.E.L.D. show. The first season was okay. It had its ups and downs. The second season started out really good. But once Agent Carter hit, I was just so enamored of that that I really didn't catch on to the rest of the season of uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and I don't think it's necessarily because of Joss Whedon, but I just liked Agent Carter so much more. So I'm coming to this as not a extreme fan of Joss Whedon, but enjoying his stuff and enjoying this series. I, I don't think Joss is overly involved with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm. No, I think it's more I, I his brother, actually. Yeah, I think it's his brother as well. Yeah, I think it's produced by Mutant Enemy. Um, as part of Whedon's deal, but I don't think he himself is is involved with it on a day-to-day basis at all. Beyond directing the pilot episode, I don't think he's been involved with the show much at all. It doesn't have that feel of a Whedon show. It has that feel of people trying to be Joss Whedon, which is the downfall of many shows that aren't produced by the man himself. He has been hugely influential on television. There's lots of little things. Even now, we'll be watching something, and I'll say to Angela, that's a Whedonism. That's from Buffy. And there is so much of Buffy that has, has informed what television has become. And I'm just on about little lines of dialogue. Uh, not so much being a phrase that has entered TV vernacular. That's from Buffy. 
and adding wise to the end of things is a Buffyism. So there's so many ways he's been influential on television without ever really having a smash hit TV series. Let's not forget Buffy was on the WB. Doesn't take much to be a smash hit on the WB. This was cancelled after 13 episodes when it was on a major network. So he's not really had the level of success that his closest, I don't want to say superior, his closest, what's the word I'm looking for? The person closest to Whedon and the TV firm and at the minute, I would say, is J.J. Abrams. Mm-hmm. And Abrams and Whedon both represent to me the different sides of the television coin. Whedon tends to do stuff that is a little bit off center, a little bit not perhaps as mainstream as Abrams stuff, but has just enough mainstream appeal to get that there is a core audience that like it. But it will never really cross over into that massive mainstream appeal that Abrams shows has. Abrams show Abrams has done Alias and Person of Interest and Lost and pretty much all of them were mainstream hits with the possible exception of Alias. And you can see the difference in their approach to the films as well. Whedon has inadvertently blundered into doing blockbusters. Abrams does blockbusters. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the difference between the two. For me, Whedon is my preferred um, producer. I connect more with his characters and what he says in his work than I do with Abrams. But I'm not down on Abrams. I loved Alias. I love Person of Interest. I think Mission Impossible 3 is easily the best of the Mission Impossible films so far. The fifth one that's coming out may prove me wrong on that. But for me, Whedon is much more interesting as a writer in that he's not afraid to fail. And that's what I find interesting about him. There is nothing about this show that is mainstream in any way whatsoever. And the fact that he thought he could get away with it on a mainstream network is a constant surprise to me. Yeah, the but one we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll get into more about Whedon versus other people and the tone of his shows as we go along, I think. Yeah, I think the one thing that Whedon excels at is doing interesting characters. And uh, this, this show is populated with some of the most interesting characters that you will find in, te- in television. And, hmm. you know, I, I come from that not having seen Buffy or Angel because I'm certain that he set up this idea of these very interesting characters and giving them very uh, giving them uh, these sort of arcs that you know would lead them to be these very unique characters. So I think that's one of the things that that uh, Whedon excels at, and you get to see these characters like this fleshed out in this series. I, I think the characters in this have more fleshed out than than Buffy from the get-go. Buffy's pilot, and I've got an episode of Palace Glittering Delights, you can go back and listen to that, uh, talking about the first season of Buffy. But Buffy's characters are all archetypes from the get-go, deliberately. He said he did that deliberately to bring people into the show. And from there, he fleshed them out a little bit more. I thought everyone in this pilot was interesting from the get-go. But Mal Reynolds is certainly one of my favorite television characters, even though I'm far more like Wash. I'm not as cool as Mal. (laughs) But the other side of the spectrum, we've got Paul, who's never watched Firefly. Came dragged kicking and screaming into this one. (laughs) Yeah, let's just peel behind the curtain. This is all my fault. I was on holiday, and while I was swimming in the pool, minding my own business, I just suddenly got this inspirational idea that we are so far ahead with recording Deep Space Nine. And we keep making jokes and listen to the prophets, our Deep Space Nine podcast that you should go and listen to, to truefreaks.com, that we, at the end of that, we've got all this list of shows that we're going to cover. And I was just minding my own business swimming along, and I just suddenly thought, why are we waiting? 
this one who ran for 13 episodes plus a film we can do this in seven recording sessions so i immediately texted paul and sean and said you can tell me to piss off if you want to but why don't we do this every other recording session and they both said yeah okay and then i I said said, okay yeah yeah paul said piss off but sean said okay and immediately after they got in touch with me and paul said you do know i've never seen this show right and that just made me more interested in doing it because I think this is just, just such an interesting dynamic. You've got me, who is the Whedon fan. You've got Sean, who needs to be convinced on occasion. And then you've got Paul, who's never even seen it. And I think that's an interesting dynamic for a show. In 15 episodes or so, I may be proved wrong, but well, we'll see. I, I'll give you you know, my background a little bit on it is I am not very, not very well versed in the Whedonverse, uh, probably even less so, less so than Sean. And uh i know with buffy i had heard wonderful things about it for years and when i did try to do a uh a binge watching of it uh for some reason i only got like two or three episodes in and then i got derailed not because i disliked it but just because you know, life got into the way <clears throat> so i never did get around to finishing that off uh the only show that i have watched is agents of shield uh, which, as we said, is not necessarily so much a Joss Whedon-influenced show. And my experience with it is very, very similar to Sean's. As far as Firefly goes, I've heard tremendous things over the years about it, and it is only 13 episodes, and you would think, you know, it, it's it's an easy candidate to binge watch, and I've actually had access to it for a while, and I've been wanting to watch it, but I've never had anything to kind of just push me over to the edge to actually do it. So I'm, I'm happy to have this opportunity. I'm thinking, as I was watching the first episode, I'm thinking my only negative right now on it is I feel because I've heard so much about it that I've already been influenced a little bit, and it's I want to like it a lot. Instead of just giving it a fair share, a fair shake as somebody who never saw it and just came across it on TV and started to watch it, I actually have the desire to watch, to like this show. Now, in my experience, sometimes that works in your favor and sometimes that works against you. Some, you know, sometimes it, it makes you give something a shot that you wouldn't and stick with something a little longer than you might have until you finally get to that point where it starts bearing fruit. And other times you watch something that people raved about and ultimately you say, yeah, I don't get what all the buzz was. So that's where we have to see what's going to happen with this one. Uh, I'll, I'll peel back the curtain or, or cut right to the chase on it. So far, one episode, one two-part episode in, so good. <laughs> yeah, it does kind of – there is that kind of trepidation you can come across where people have lauded this show for so long and said this show is great, this show is great, that it does kind of lead you to feel that – if you do watch it and don't like it as much as so many other people do that you're it, it is sort of setting it up for for failure. It is kind of that. Um, what is the name of the film? The Orson Welles film Citizen with Rosebud. Yeah, Citizen Kane. Well, it's early in the morning. It's it's the, sort of that Citizen Kane effect that everyone says this is the greatest film ever made and they beg you to watch it and you watch it and you go. Okay, I didn't get as much out of it as this person did, and I don't see why this is supposedly the greatest film ever made. And there is that trap where the the plaudits that this show has been given over time could lead it to be 
could lead you down that road that would make you think that it's not going to turn out to be as good as people have said. Hopefully that won't be the case. The movie example for that for me uh, was Forrest Gump. I remember that movie came out and people were raving, oh, this is so great, you know, and all, all just couldn't be more positive in the reviews. And then when I saw it, I said, eh, it's all right, <laughs> but I don't really see what all the uh, the fuss is about. Yeah, I felt that about Forrest Gump as well. Yeah, and there is always... Watched it once, don't feel the need to watch it again. And, yeah, and then, then you the... have movies like Citizen Kane since you brought it up. My thoughts on Citizen Kane were I can watch that movie... And it does pull me into the plot a little bit, but not quite enough. And I can watch it and I find myself looking at the technical aspects, you know, the cinematography and the angles and the editing and things like that. And, and I can see that it's masterful, but it lacks a little bit in entertainment. And when I'm rating movies, entertainment is a big factor in that. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's why we had a whole a whole uh, string conversation on Facebook about that. Uh, somebody posted, uh, I think it was the top 50 movies of all time or top 100 movies of all time. And we were debating the input of certain movies. And ultimately that's what I came down to is entertainment value is a big factor for me. When I rank, if I'm ranking my top 10 of all time, they have to not only be technically well-made, but they have to be entertaining too. So Citizen Kane doesn't make my top ten of all time because I don't think it's that entertaining. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen it. Uh, spoilers, Rosebud's a sled. All oh, right, Bruce Willis is dead. Yeah. He's a girl. All of that. <laughs> Tony, oh, Tony Perkins is, is his own mother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a massive twist. All right, so we'll, all right, I'll do the synopsis and then we we can talk about the pilot episode. Sounds Rather good. confusingly, the pilot episode is called Serenity, so don't get it mixed up with the film that followed the series. As I've said, it was written and directed by Joss Whedon. I have stolen the synopsis from Wikipedia. The synopsis in 2511, Sergeant Mal Reynolds and Corporal Zoe Elaine fight in the Battle of Serenity Valley during the Unification War. Without Earth support, the Browncoats are eventually defeated and massacred by the Alliance. Six years later, Mal is the captain of his own transport ship, an older model Firefly class vessel he named Serenity, and Zoe is his second in command. The rest of the ship's crew consists of Wash, who is the pilot, and also Zoe's husband, Kaylee, the engineer, and Jane Cobb, the gun for hire. Inara, a companion who rents one of Serenity's two shuttles, normally travels with them, but she's currently away from the ship on business. While the crew are illegally salvaging some crates off an abandoned spaceship, they are discovered by an Alliance cruiser. To escape capture, they deploy a decoy distress beacon. The Alliance cruiser falls for the diversion, but broadcasts a bulletin that a Firefly-class ship is carrying stolen Alliance goods. The crew of Serenity travel to Persephone, where they intend to deliver the stolen goods to Badger, the small-time gang leader who hired them for the heist. When they meet with Badger, he reneges on the deal, partly because he's worried about the Alliance broadcast on the rogue Firefly, and partly because he doesn't like the way Mal looks down on it. Mal decides to try selling the cargo to Patience, an old business associate who lives on Whitefall. Zoe has misgivings about the plan since Patience won't shot Mal, but Mal is desperate to get rid of the hot cargo and bears no grudge since he was shot in a perfectly legitimate conflict of interest. The crew joins up with Inara and picks up passengers to provide some supplemental income. The new passengers are a preacher named Shepherd Book, a bumbling man named Dobson, and a wealthy doctor named Simon Tam who brings on board a mysterious large crate. 
En route to Whitefall, Wash discovers that someone on board sent a message hailing the nearest Alliance cruiser. Suspecting that Simon is the mole, Mal confronts him only to discover that Dobson is the Fed. Dobson surprises Mal by telling him it is Simon he's here to arrest, not Mal. Later, whilst Dobson attempts to arrest Simon, he shoots Kaylee in the stomach before being overpowered by Buck, who is surprisingly good at hand-to-hand combat for a shepherd. When the Alliance cruiser orders them to dock for prisoner transfer, Simon threatens not to treat Kaylee if Serenity does not flee. Torn between the threat of capture and Kaylee's safety, Mal reluctantly agrees after being prodded by Inara to do so and flees from the Alliance ship. Mal goes to the cargo bay, opens Simon's mysterious crate and is surprised to find a young woman inside in cryonic sleep. The woman in the crate is revealed to be River Tam, Simon's sister. Simon explains that his sister was a brilliant child who was sent away to an elite Alliance Academy when she was 14. After River sent him an encoded letter for help, he discovered the Alliance was torturing and experimenting on students at the Academy. Simon left his job as a successful trauma surgeon to rescue her from the Alliance and is on the run trying to protect her from them. Mal decides to proceed to Whitefall as planned, dropping off both the goods and the Tam siblings. Dobson has been tied up out of the way. Mal tells Jane to interrogate Dobson to find out what he told the Alliance. Once Jane finds out that the Alliance knows nothing, Dobson tries to bribe him. He also told Jane that his first name is Lawrence. Soon after, they discover that a Reaver ship is approaching. Zoe explains to Simon that if they take the ship, they'll rape us to death, eat our flesh, and sew our skins to our clothing. And if we're very, very lucky, they'll do it in that order. Luckily, the Reaver ship passes by without incidents. Serenity lands on Whitefall, and Mal proposed to make the deal. Distrustful of Patience, he sends Jane to take a sniper position in the hills, whilst he and Zoe walk out to meet Patience and her henchmen in a deserted valley. Mal gives Patience a sample of the cargo, which turns out to be nutritional ammunition bars, each one of which can feed an entire family for a month. Patience tries to kill them so she can take the cargo without paying, but Mal and Zoe, with the help of Jane, dispatch Patience and her gang, taking the money they were promised. Although one of Patience's men shot Mal's arm, ripping a hole on his sleeve coat. Jane then joins the others, having been contacted by Wash with the bad news. The Reavers followed them to Whitefall. Meanwhile, back on the ship, Dobson escapes, knocking out Buck and grabbing River. Simon inexpertly attacks Dobson, but after they scuffle, Dobson ends up with River grabbed by an arm and pointing a gun at her head. Mal arrives and shoots Dobson, dumping his body off the ship as they start to take off, the Reavers hot on their tail. Mal orders Inara, Simon and River to Inara's shuttle, preparing them to escape if the ship is boarded by the Reavers. Jane carries the still convalescing Kaylee to the engine room, and Book offers to help them. With Jane and Book carrying out Kaylee's instructions, Wash is able to pull off a crazy Ivan, and Serenity escapes. Jane tells Mal that they should dump the siblings, since Dobson had told him during the interrogation that the Alliance will keep coming after River. Mal, suspecting that Dobson tried to make a deal with Jane, asks why he didn't turn. Jane responds that the money wasn't good enough. Mal asks what happened when it is. Jane says, that'll be an interesting day. Jane leaves as Simon enters. Mal suggests to Simon that he and River might be safer on the move than hiding in one place and points out that Serenity is always moving and in need of a medic. Simon accepts the position. The end. As usual with um, with Wikipedia, that was a rather dry synopsis, wasn't it? I thought you did a good job of reading it. When I read a synopsis that long, I'm afraid at the end I sound like Ferris Bueller's teacher. Or, or, or even worse. <laughs> or Shelley Brown. Even worse, Bill doing a con review. But, uh, <laughs> no, that. But was... I, I think you 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 maintained your enthusiasm as you read it, which is impressive. 
Well, it's not really difficult to maintain your enthusiasm discussing this show. I think this is a really good pilot, and I'm surprised that Fox decided not to use this as the pilot episode because it does such a great job of setting up all these characters and without really having to tell you all that much about them, letting the characters' actions show what their motivations are and what kind of characters they are. This is this is a really good example of actors and I guess the screenwriters as well showing what the characters are like without you having to come out and tell them about them, without having a bunch of dialogue saying, well, I lost, you know, I was in this battle and I, I lost my faith in humanity and God and, you know, the, the government and all this. And this is why I'm doing this. They don't come out and do that. They allow it to be, they allow the the viewers to gather that from the actions of the characters. And I really appreciate that because so often shows just tend to spell that out for you through dialogue and you don't get that here. So I, this is what makes this a significantly better show than a lot of shows on the air right now. But I think your your explanation is exactly why they didn't want to go with that. I agree with you that it was very well done, but I think you need to have the motivation to sit and watch it and let these characters develop. And with a brand new show that has never been on before with a, a, a genre that's kind of a little off the beaten path here as the sci-fi Western, uh, I could see where Fox's executives would have some fear that people wouldn't give it a chance and wouldn't let the characters have the time to, uh, you know, to, to show who they are. Uh, it, it was a viewing by me that actually took a little effort to, you know, to focus on it and figure out who was who. Uh, so I could I could see where they would have some fear on on a pilot episode that that maybe people wouldn't stick with it. Now, once you do stick with it, I think it it proves to be well worth it. But I could see where people who don't otherwise have a reason to might just say. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not going to be bothered with this. You know, it, it's it's a day and age. I know with me personally, where a lot of times when I'm watching TV, I'm multitasking, and I think if you are multitasking as you're watching the show, you're probably going to miss out on a lot of that, and you're going to get about 25 minutes into it, and you're going to say, I don't know what's going on, and you and you may turn it off at that point. So I can understand their fears, even though ultimately they ended up with a very very high quality pilot i think it's a brilliant pilot i don't disagree with anything you've said you can't multitask while you're watching this i think that's a strength i think breaking bad plays on the idea that you can't multitask while you're watching it and maybe firefly was just ahead of its time i like that they don't spell out the story beats for you At the beginning of the show we clearly see mal kiss across he's clearly a religious man so what happened to him that later on in the episode, when Buck asks him if he minds if they say grace, he says, only as long as you don't say it aloud. You know, what has damaged this man so much that he's gone the complete opposite direction? I like that the costumes tell you who the characters are. You can look at pictures of each one of those and know exactly what they are just from what they were. And you could tell that, that Jane's the mercenary. You could tell that Buck's the shepherd. You could tell that Mal's the lead by what they were in. And it's one of the best examples of actors and characters and show that I can think of in, in recent times. Every single person in this is exquisitely cast, which is why 
it's interesting to learn that Inara was originally a different actress and they recast it and refilmed certain scenes because you can't now imagine this ensemble not being together. I, I thought it was a masterful pilot for all the reasons you've just said Fox probably didn't like it. And in addition to the reasons that you gave, which are all pretty much what they said, they thought Mal was too dour as a lead. And as we go into the series, they do lighten him up slightly. But he's still snarky and he's still funny and he's still damaged goods, which is the point of the character. I thought the moment when Mal won me over, the moment where I said, this is a character I'm going to like, was when he confronted Jane at the uh, dinner table. Now, here's a character who he, he clearly will not be able to physically compete with as far as in a, in a fight. But first of all, he doesn't hesitate to call him out and, and exercise his command as the captain. But also you get the feeling that even though he can't physically battle this guy, somehow he would win if they had to fight. And, and that was the point where, where I, I said, okay, this is a character I'm going to enjoy watching for 13 episodes. Uh, and, and I'm going to regret the fact that there aren't 100 episodes. It is. It is. The cancellation is a shame. But for now, let's just revel in what we've got. I think it's a brilliant pilot. I love that it takes its time to unfold. I love that it takes its time to set up the characters. I love that they're not all in place at the beginning. As you go through the show, they add a couple more characters that will become regulars. And the thing about it as a pilot, the thing that lets it down, I think, is having an opening credit sequence. That is the opening credits of the series. I think if they'd have treated this as a pilot film, and done what a lot of pilot films do in that they don't have the standard opening credit sequence, it would have been more as a surprise because there's no doubt in your mind because she's in the opening credits that Kaylee's not going to die. Whereas if they hadn't had that opening title sequence, this being a Joss Whedon show, you would have been, well, maybe they'll kill her. Maybe she will actually die. And you wouldn't have known that Book and Simon and River would be on the ship. Having the title sequences with clips from future episodes, I think, damages this as a pilot because it's not quite as surprising as it should be. But in every other respect, I think it's it's brilliant. And it doesn't look cheap over a decade later, although the Battle of Serenity Valley at the beginning is shot all in darkness. So they can get away with not have many people. There. Yeah, it I did, I did notice they could also get away with uh, with sets a little easier that way. Yeah. Well, it's filmed at late Los Angeles, so it was filmed on location. But you're right, it does look occasionally like Star Trek planets. It it reminded me of some of the DS9 battle scenes that we're going to get to in a couple of seasons. Yeah, whether or not they did some pickups on stage, I don't know. But it was filmed on location, but it did look remarkably stagey for something that was filmed on location. But for me, that was the only bit of it where I felt it showed its budget restrictions. I thought the rest of it, held up over a decade later and you can see how influential it was on Battlestar Galactica oh definitely I think one of the things that that Firefly innovated was the sort of I guess what you'd call the the man in space with the camera uh, focus for the uh, for the ships where where you'd get this sort of image of there's some guy in a spacesuit just out there in space who's filming the ship going by and it's not the standard long shot where it's it's a very static shot you get these zooms and these uh these quick cuts that that gives it a more frenetic feel 
and Battlestar Galactica would definitely take advantage of that in the show. But I think Firefly was probably the first show to originate it, and it gives it a very different – it gives it a more gritty, a more – I guess a more realistic feel than your typical Star Trek where you're seeing these ships move in slowly and pass by. It, it I like the I, I like the uh, use of that sort of effect through throughout the uh, throughout the show. Hmm. I mean, let's give shout out to Space Above and Beyond, which also did that as well. That's true. So there is a little bit of Space Above and Beyond in both this and Galactica. But Space Above and Beyond special effects are all in space. This does atmosphere and therefore they have to do the texture of the ground as well, which maybe they couldn't do when Space Above and Beyond was on the Earth. I don't know how advanced computer CG was at that point. But I, I thought this held up remarkably well, considering it's now over a decade old. Oh, I didn't, I didn't think the special effects suffered at all for the, for a 10-year age gap. Uh, interestingly, like with the, with the pilot, is I did not feel that we had a point-of-view character. I didn't feel that there was anybody who we were viewing this through their eyes. Uh, the closest thing I would say is maybe the Doctor. But... I think that's one of the things that caused you to have to really focus on it to to kind of get what was going on. I think had they given you a point of view character, it might have brought you through it easily, more easily. Of course, that would have led you to exactly the things that we're praising it for not doing. Uh, that would have led you to probably having scenes of exposition where he's having the characters explained to him or whatever. Uh, again, it, it took a little bit more effort to watch this. Uh, it, it, but I think it paid off. I think it, it, it rewarded that effort. But, you know, other pilots, I'm comparing it to other shows that I've enjoyed over the years. And Lost, for example, the pilot pulled me in immediately. You know, you, you were just gripped. The second Jack's eye opened up on the beach, you were just pulled in and you're watching the show. And, and it, it didn't really take any effort to get into it. Uh, Breaking Bad opens up with an expositional scene of, of Walter White explaining what went on, you know, because then it goes into flashback mode, and it pulled me right in. This show, as I said, if, if we weren't doing this the way we are, I could see myself sitting on the couch and kind of looking at the newspaper and having the show on in the background and, and having gone half an hour into it and saying, I, I don't know what's going on, and just flip to a ball game or something, uh, which which is a bad reflection on me. I'm not, I'm not you know, I'm not, uh, well, I'm, I'm I, not, not, not defending that in any way. I think that's, that's a, a, a character flaw, you know, not being able to put myself into a more intelligent show and, and tell you that I would, that I would totally buy into it without having some sort of a, a, an assurance that it was going to pay off for me. And, and that's what I had with this. I had an assurance that it was going to pay off for me. I had everybody telling me that, uh, you know, that, that it would pay off. And if nothing else, I had committed to doing this show with you guys. So I knew I was going to give it the shot that, you know, that it deserved, but it did pay off. And that's, that's a huge plus. Do we think that, that that's one of the things that might've been the downfall of the show, why it did only go one season was because it didn't have that sort of instant connection that you got from those shows like lost, where you actually had to pay more attention to the show to get all the all the goodness out of it rather than just these sort of flashy shows that you can watch and not have to 
put as much effort into trying to get at things out of it. Do you think that's why it may not have succeeded initially as well as other shows did? That's that's my first instinct on it. Now, I mean, I think we're selling Lost short to say that's a show you didn't have to pay attention to, but I do think it had a little bit more of a hook in the pilot to get you focused on it before you did have to invest yourself as much. Hmm. Um, but I, I, you know, I've only watched one two-part episode so far, so I can't speak for, as the show went on. Uh, I would have, I would like to think, and I'm sure Joss Whedon was hoping that the people who did invest the time in that pilot were going to create a buzz and a word of mouth to, to make the people who didn't give it the chance to go back and, and, and give it the time it deserves. And I guess that really didn't happen. I, I don't, I think it's a conversation we may be able to have better after we've watched the next episode, which was written over a weekend to Fox's specific notes of what they wanted from the pilot. So until we, we see the train job, I don't think you can really see, well, what is it that Fox wanted from it that this didn't give them? But it does. It goes into what we were talking about earlier about the difference between Abrams and Whedon, who are probably the, the two most prominent television slash film producers currently working, that Lost gets you straight away. It's fast paced. It's frenetic. It's action packed. This is more character based. And I think maybe that's why I prefer this to Lost. Because if the characters are engaging, and they are in this almost from the get-go, you'll forgive them bad episodes a lot easier than Lost, which ultimately became about the mystery rather than about the characters. And ultimately, Mm -hmm. I think that was that show's downfall. That by the time we got to season six, I didn't care anymore. I I would tend to agree with you on that. I would have liked to have got to have season six and see if I still did care. And I do think something that we will have to talk about when we get to the end is the fact that it only lasted 15 years. Why it has such a rabid following is it never got the chance to be crap. There is something to be said for a quick burst in and done. But you're, you're, you're definitely, uh, you know, if, if you're writing a show for Paul Spataro, you definitely are hitting the formula for success when you're combining science fiction, Western, and character-based. You and me put both. those three together. I mean, that's, that's, that's a good formula as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and I love – I just love the feel of this. I love the dialogue. I love that it's not cookie-cutter dialogue that you can transpose to any other show. It would only work in the context of this and it's delivered by actors who are invested in it and get it. And I love the look of it. I love that it's all dusty backwater places. Nowhere shiny in this, ironically, apart from <laughs> Alliance worlds. Alliance worlds are shiny. Alliance ships are shiny. Alliance uniforms are pristine and neat. All these people that we're following this show are us. They're the little people who are just trying to eke out a living on a day-to-day basis, doing whatever they can do to survive in the in the daily life i love the look of it everyone wears clothes jane wears t-shirts and combat trousers you know there are no science fictiony clothes but at the same time they don't look like they could exist now even though you could possibly wear that and get away with it and no one would bat an eyelid at you and it's just he's put a lot of thought into the world building of it in the same way that the original star wars did And that you get it not through exposition, not through people explaining to you how it came about, but by what's on screen. 
you get all of that just by watching the show. I think it's masterfully thought through and masterfully put together. And I do think it's it's a shame that they didn't err this first to see if it would build an audience. Because it's clear from the beginning the network didn't have faith in it based on their notes about the pilot and what they made them do next. Because like Paul says, you have to pay attention to this. But ultimately, you're rewarded for paying attention to it. And everything works in it. And I know Luke Giaconetti's email be about Firefly. And he considers it just a massive ripoff of some anime thing. And he's right. It probably is. But there's an awful lot of Western shows that are ripoff of Japanese shows. Doesn't make them bad shows. Well, the Magnificent Seven is one of my favorite the movies of all time. Seven is also one of my favorite movies of all time. So if you put The Magnificent Seven with Star Wars, I'm tuning in to begin with. And this this is what if Raylan Givens was on a spaceship. And that's probably why I love it so much. But there's individual moments in this that just pay off so much better than the overall plot and the overall arc. The, the bit at the beginning where Kaylee says to, to Mal when they land on Persephone, we need a, a chamber coil or a reactor coil or something. The one we've got is not in great condition. And Mal's like, we've not got money for stuff like that. Keep her in the air. Pay attention to that. That will pay off in a few episodes time. He should have listened to Kaylee. And Kaylee's, just Kaylee's joy at the strawberry, implying that on the frontier worlds, they don't get a lot of real fruit. And just lots of little moments like that make it worthwhile. And there isn't a single character in this that can't support an episode. Whereas you do get in Deep Space Nine, there are characters you don't care about. And the minute you learn that episode's about them, you're like, oh, dear God. The minute you get a Deanna Troy episode in Next Gen, nobody could. <laughs> yeah, and that's what we'll see later later on in the series. We'll see episodes about each of the individual characters. In fact, one of my favorite episodes is about the most sort of despicable character on the show is Jane. And you find out that even though this guy who's basically he's the guy gardener of the of the Serenity series, he is the a-hole of this series. You know, he speaks out of turn. He makes crude and lewd jokes. He is a gun for hire, but you find out later in the series that he's he's practically worshipped on this one planet for doing this one thing. So you get all this you get all this setup and you get these characterizations that make you feel that this is going to be just oh Jane's going to be the stereotypical asshole character, but Whedon doesn't allow it to just stop there. He layers these characters and in this in this opening. In this opening pilot, you get such a great look into all of these characters that you want to learn more about them. It's 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 really masterfully done by Whedon. And I, I honestly, if this is the kind of stuff that he does for like Buffy and Angel and the rest of his shows, I, I want to start checking them out because I need to start checking them out when I when I get time. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you. And I, again, I don't have the uh, I, I, I was going to say I don't have the advantage of knowing what's coming, but I think I have the advantage of not knowing what's coming. Uh, no, that's why when I found out you'd never seen it, that made me want to do it more. And, and you know, there's this. I remember, well, you know, like when you talk, Sean, about not having seen Breaking Bad, I think, oh, I'm jealous of you because you get to sit and watch this whole show. So I feel like right now you guys are sitting there saying that you're jealous of me because I get to watch it. Mm -hmm. So I have to enjoy that. I have to and, – and, and 
I think that was part of the reason, you know, having that attitude was part of the reason why I did feel like, let me sit and really pay attention to this as I'm watching. Let me, let me give this a fair shot because everything I hear from everybody who watched this show is telling me it's going to pay off and I'm going to enjoy it. So that's, that's the one aspect of it, though, that I can't say what would have happened if I was just sitting on a, on a Monday night and this show came on and I gave it a shot. I don't know if I would have lost interest or not. I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> I'm glad I would really be pissed at myself right now if, if I was sitting here saying, yeah, I was the guy who did turn it off that day. Right. What do you think about the basic premise of it, that Mal was fighting on the side of the independents, the independents lost, the alliance is now in charge? Because at no point in the series, other than the river story, as that plays out, the alliance aren't portrayed as actual bad guys. They're not the empire. They're the government. And you can like or dislike your government. You can think that governments are a pain in the ass and we don't need them, or you can actively support them. But in this show, that's what they're played as. And Mal has no choice but to accept the way things are, even though he fought against them. What do you think of that premise? Yeah, you, you don't, you're not given really a feeling for what the basis of the conflict is. Um, you know, you just, yeah, basically you're being given the, the government, you know, basically the the big bad against the rebels, but you're not told why they're rebelling, what they're rebelling against. Uh, and and the I fact just want to interrupt for a second. This. Sorry. I'm sorry? I just want to interrupt a second and say big bad Buffy term. Is that? So go, going back to how influential he's been on television. Okay. Uh, but carry on, sorry. I, I was unaware of that, actually. So it, it's it's influenced me without even knowing that it has. But uh, it, it's interesting to take the perspective. It's it's like okay, let's pick up after the Empire, uh, after uh, Return of the Jedi. Only, you know, only the uh, rebels lost. Um, and that that is that's an interesting premise in and of itself. And I would think that if the show was given time, I don't know over the course of time that we have, but I would think if it was given time, you would eventually learn a little bit about what the nature of the conflict was and why there are people rebelling against this particular government. But I'm fine with it being left as a nebulous, we don't know, we just know that this conflict existed. Uh, that that really, you know, that's almost a MacGuffin kind of situation. You don't really have to know why they're fighting necessarily. But if you're going to have, you know, 100 hours of, of drama on it, maybe eventually you would find out. Um, one, one thing that kind of left me a little... Not necessarily scratching my head, but just kind of wondering, and I wonder if they might have gone into flashback mode at some point, was how do you get from that opening scene to where we pick up however many years later? Was it six years later? Yeah, six years later. It almost appears at the end of that opening scene that they're going to be taken prisoner as failed rebels, but I'm guessing that didn't happen. And I'd be interested in knowing, you know, how, how they did progress to get to that point. How did they escape? Uh, and I, I also liked in that opening scene how, you know, Mal is doing his best to motivate his people and saying, you know, this, this isn't going to happen. We, we're, what is it? We're too pretty to lose or whatever. We're and then they lose. And the guy who he's talking to gets shot with a laser and he's gone. So he's not infallible by any stretch of the imagination. 
know, I I like the opening. It's tonally quite different from the rest of the episode, but deliberately so because it's setting up that Mal and Zoe have this relationship that she doesn't even have with her husband, and her husband can't even understand the relationship that they have, which felt very realistic to me for people that have served together in that kind of conflict. So Zoe's relationship with Mal and Zoe's relationship with her husband, Wash, is very interesting and played up throughout the series. But Wash is never jealous of Mal in that way. They, they start off with him you know, hmm. doing the dinosaur fight, which, which I found to be engaging in and of itself. If there's any character that's our way in, it's Wash. But they don't give you enough from his perspective for him to become your point of view character either. Yeah, and there's... No, no, I agree there isn't one in this. In fact, if a story is about a character undergoing an arc or a change, who is this about? Then it's Simon's story then. The character actually changes throughout the course of this episode is Simon. Right, that's, yeah, that's and what I had said. I think he's the closest camera. thing we have to a point of view character in this episode because he's also coming in, he's basically coming in where we're coming in and yeah. meeting these people. But also... With the character of Jane, um, Sean's just said he's the Guy Gardner of the show. But the scene where Kaylee's being operated on, he's outside the infirmary just rocking backwards and forward on his haunches. He clearly cares about Kaylee. And, and that's one of the great things about the show. Even though these people are antagonistic towards each other, you know, you've got Mal and Inara, you know, Mal basically calling her a whore. But then by the end of the episode, he's incredibly concerned that these reavers are going to take over the ship and he wants to make sure that she's off the ship for their safety you can feel that they really get the idea of family in this disparate about a group of people together and that's one of the things that really works for me you get the scene like you said you've got the scene with jane looking inside the window as kaylee's being operated on and you get these secondary characters of simon and river and uh you know book coming on the to ship and what they're going to do to add or enhance this sort of family feel. And that's, that's one of the really interesting things about this is that these disparate groups of people come together and they shouldn't work together, but they do because, because which is now mm. guardians of the galaxy. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I guess you could kind of relate it to guardians of the galaxy, but I think it, this, it, the, this the, the it, familiar it relationship with these people seems like that to me, the way that they put it together in the movie, as far as the relationship of these characters, that's the way it feels here. And, uh, and I mean that as a positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there is a guardians vibe to it and how they all get along. But then even, even with that, you've got that Jane clearly cares about Kaylee. So why does he make that awful joke to her at the dinner table? That Mal ultimately banishes him for. But because he's, uh, you know, he's too rough around the edges. He he, he can care, but he can't smooth himself out. He can't articulate that. And and you kind of get from the beginning of the show that Jane is the stereotypical high school jock who has absolutely no filter whatsoever. So he's the kind of guy who's going to say something because he finds it amusing, regardless of regardless of whether or not it's actually should be said in polite conversation. He is, he is total, he is total id essentially. So Mm. he can allow that kind of thing to happen. And, and, and and that brings to mind to me, the scene in guardians when Drax is trying to articulate how he feels. (laughs) The green whore is now my friend. (laughs) 
I, and you know, I mean, Joss Whedon has obviously had an influence over the Marvel films. Who knows if he even, you know, kind of helped him along. I don't know if he script doctored in any way, but I could see that being one of his lines. Uh, we know he script doctored Thor 2. Unfortunately, uh, he script doctored X-Men. Yeah, but that all got threw out apart from the, the, the one line about Wolverine being a uh, Cyclops being a dick. Hmm. And, well, no, but he also his line was the, uh, you know, what happens to a toad in a lightning storm or whatever. I know, but the, the punchline, it croaks, is funny. And they left that out of the film. Oh, or I think that, it's funny. No, was, <laughs> no, I'm just trying to think about that. Why did they leave that out of the film? That makes more sense than it does the same thing as everyone else. You know, that's yeah, that's, that's what an actual says. His, his punchline was, it croaks. Oh, for the love. And they changed his worked. punchline. So that's why I don't accept that Whedon's at fault for that. Okay, see, I I was under the impression that he wrote the actual line they used, which made me think, huh, guy's not as funny as he thinks he is. (laughs) I'm I'm sure he wrote it croaks, but people can write in and tell us if we're wrong. Uh, Mark Shepard's Badger. If you watch Supernatural, you know who Mark Shepard is, because he's now in Supernatural every week, but he's also been in Doctor Who, just for sure. Now, who was he in Doctor Who? I'm trying to. Where did he show? He's in. He's in the episode where they go back in time to Nixon. Oh, okay. And he's he's the CIA agent. It's a Matt Smith episode. Oh yeah, it's the one. It's the one at sort of the beginning the of the seventh season where like the Impossible Astronaut maybe. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it because it's his dad who's playing the older version of him, who's William yeah. Morgan Shepard, who was in Star Trek Six and the Skit Side Man episode of Next Generation, and he's Blank Reg in Max Headroom. Okay. So yeah. Now, now he I has remember quite who um. He has quite a resume. I love Mark Shepard in this. I think Mark Shepard's very, very funny in it, especially because Mal does look down on him. You get the impression that Mal doesn't want to be dealing with people like Badger, but he doesn't really have much of a choice. Well, his the entire idea of the Serenity crew is they're trying to make their way in this world. They can't do it through legitimate means, so they've got to be kind of underhanded, but they don't want to be underhanded to the extent that they're doing evil things. They're kind of like, you know, I don't know how to explain it. They're, they're kind of like a polite mafia. You know, they're not wanting to go out and kill people. They don't want to, they just want to make money sort of skirting the law. And I think that's a, you know, that's, you know, having it having it sort of that Western theme as well as that space faring theme actually works really well. With that sort of ideal. Hmm. I think I think Badger's really good in it, and he's interesting. And they only take passengers on to make some supplementary income. So all of this could have been completely avoided if Badger had paid them. None of this would have happened. Mm-hmm. And because uh, that's the only reason. Yeah, because that's the only reason they take Book and Dobson and Simon on. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I can say negative about this uh, about this opening uh, episode or these opening two episodes, I guess, is that they really don't get much into the character of River. Now, that's pretty. Uh, I, I guess that's acceptable for them to do that because she's just there as sort of kind of the sort of MacGuffin at the time. We'll get more into her character there, but I think her character was kind of diminished that they didn't allow her character to be fleshed out in the same way that the rest of the characters on the show were. You got the backstory of her or 
what her character was supposed to be like by dialogue delivered by uh, Simon throughout the show, you know, saying that she's uh, this incredible level of brilliance and all of these things. And I would have liked to have, to have had her character fleshed out in sort of the same way that the other characters on the show were. That would have worked better yeah. for me. Yeah, but you you will get that later because essentially she's the David Banner to the Alliance's Jack McGee. Mm-hmm. She's the reason that Serenity has to keep moving. So they will they will get into that more as the series goes on. See, if this one is for introducing all the other characters, River is the main story arc for the first season, along with other little subplots that were cleverly introduced into this without signposting them. Like like uh, Paul was saying earlier on, why is a shepherd? so good at hand-to-hand combat what's that what was that funny little vial that inara had in her room why is she not working out with the other companions why is she on firefly why is she on serenity so there's lots of little questions for them setting up to go the series but river's the big main story arc for the Mm -hmm. season and that will only pan out in the film because the series was cancelled before they could actually follow through on any of it and I, I guess at this point, uh, Summer Glau had uh, – apparently she had been on Angel. But She's in one episode of Angel as a ballet dancer. She's not real because she was a ballet dancer. Okay. So whether but or not – But she wouldn't be a particularly episode. well-known actress at this point. So, no, it's her first job. It's her first job as an actress. So watching this episode – I don't think you'd necessarily, you know, watching it at least when it came out, I don't think you'd necessarily see her and think, okay, she's going to be a significant character. If anything, she's presented in this as being a fairly minor character uh, and that her brother is going to be the significant character and, and she's just his reason for being. So, you know, I, I keep trying to put it in perspective of when this episode came out and I don't necessarily think I would have felt any kind of void from the fact that they didn't focus on her yet. I think, you know, knowing, you know, at this point, knowing uh, the level of fame she reached or she has reached, I could see people saying, well, how come you haven't, you know, explored that yet? But when this was a new episode, I don't think that would have been a glaring fault at all. And again, and, and it's kind of sad that we have to do it with this perspective, but knowing it only went a few episodes uh, gives a different perspective to it. Whereas if you were creating this show and you're thinking, well, I'd like to go seven seasons, you know, 24 episodes a season or 20 episodes a season or whatever, uh, you, you're thinking to yourself, I have to keep some things in reserve because, you know, I, I don't want to shoot the whole you know, shoot out all my ammo in the first episode and then, and then start looking for filler episodes because I don't know where to go from there. So I, I, I don't know that, you know, I don't know that I have any real criticism of the fact that they didn't explore her further. Yeah, because we know that she will get explored. And it, it's one of the things about every single one of this cast has gone on to have quite solid careers. The only one who was known, I think, was probably Shepard Book. Ron yeah. Glass, who, who was in, what was he in? Barney Miller. Barney Miller. And obviously Adam Baldwin had quite a successful career before Firefly. Hannah's continued to have a successful career after Firefly. But I primarily remember him from being in Independence Day. 
See, I remember him from, oh, what's that movie? My Bodyguard. I think that was the first movie he was in with Chris Makepeace and Matt Dillon, where he played the bodyguard of Chris Makepeace and, you know, beat up Matt Dillon's bodyguard at the end. It was it was a good movie from like the 19, early 1980s. I don't know if mm-hmm. anyone saw it. It I was in heavy rotation with on the movie, HBO. but I don't think I've ever seen it. It was on heavy See, rotation on HBO when I was a kid. See, everyone forgets now this was Nathan Fillion's first lead role. Yeah, this was pretty much the role that, you know, cemented him in as a as a well, a major charismatic actor. I mean, this mm. was the role that that essentially uh, this was the role that essentially ascended him to sort of geek godhood almost. You know, now everyone's like, oh, he should have been Green Lantern and, you know, Castle was spun out of this. And so, yeah, it's it's impressive to see him starting out here and looking you know, forward on his character, how big he's become because of this show. Now, watching this episode, and I, I couldn't help but compare it in some ways to DS9, uh, and I'm comparing it in my mind to the uh, to the pilot of that. And this show appears to me, and again, I've only seen this episode, but this show appears to me to have a much greater feel for. These are who our characters are, and this is where they're going to go, uh, as opposed to DS9, which seemed to have more of a, you know, this is where we think they are, and, you know, we hadn't cast the actors when we wrote these parts, and, you know, we're going we're gonna to play with it a little bit, and Kalmini is going to be a big star from this thing. You know, they never said, okay, Ron Glass is going to be the big star, and we're going to focus on him, because he's the one people know. Uh, and I, I think, although, you know, we, we were all very high on the DS9 pilot, uh, I think, again, if you invested the effort into this one, that this is a superior pilot to that. I think it's a different kind of pilot to that. Absolutely. They're working well within the Star Trek framework on Deep Space Nine. And I and think the that's, that's where I seem think to the superiority comes, is they weren't bound by a formula in any way. Mm. And I don't, I don't think the ensemble on Deep Space Nine gels as well in that pilot as they do in this. To me, this puts lie to that constant refrain that we hear from people. Oh, well, it takes a couple of seasons to get going. No, it doesn't. Here's your proof. 94 minutes. There you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think this also I think Star Trek, I don't know whether it benefited or didn't benefit from the fact that they knew that it had the Star Trek franchise name behind it. So they kind of felt in that pilot episode for deep space nine that they didn't have to have all their ducks in a row they could allow things to expand over the course of a season or what to get these characters gelled together i think joss whedon may have said okay we've got to get this thing right from the beginning so i need to have all these characters interactions and their their motivations all set up from the beginning and he did that and it made for a really impressive pilot with this i think so too is that it? Have we exhausted it? I don't know. Do, are we gonna Are we gonna give this rating like we do for the Listen to the Prophets? Or are we just gonna? Well, I was I was listening to that. I was thinking about that, but I couldn't come up with anything. We've got um, gold-plated Latterman in Deep Space Nine. There, there doesn't really seem to be anything in Firefly. We can give it ratings. We can't give it stakes like they do in Buffy. Yeah. Well, what was what was he paid? It was two hundred. They didn't say dollars, did they? No. No, it was, it was something. Was it platinum? I don't know. I'm trying to remember. Well, we can just rate it stars or, you know. Oh, stop. I don't want to do stars. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right, just, Mr. just, I'm, I'm going to throw a little trivia thing before we go to ratings. Uh, the character of Patience, portrayed yes. by Bonnie Bartlett. Yep. Who is married to William Daniels. Yay! Oh, nice. So we have our uh, David Hasselhoff <laughs> connection. Angela just yelled through, "We could give it dinosaurs." <laughs> That's not bad. <laughs> All right. Curse your inevitable betrayal. Yeah. What, what are we rating this out of five? Out of oh five no, dollars. we haven't. Wait, you haven't talked about the Reavers. What did you think about the Reavers? Because at the moment they're not much of anything, but they will become something more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the time you know, again, having seen this series and having seen the movie, the Reavers do become a a major character or a major piece of the show. I, I like the fact that they have a sort of unnamed enemy. I I enjoy the sort of almost mythical diabolical feel set up around them that, you know, if they catch us, they're going to rape us, skin us and then eat us. Hopefully in that order. I mean, that was, that really sells the idea that these are bad guys. I, I like the effects of them, you know, having to fly against their, you know, the effects of them flying against this giant ship in the atmosphere and doing the controlled burn and knocking them out like that. That was really good. Yeah, I, I, I think I may be a little hindered by the fact that I know where this is going, but I think the inclusion of the Reavers here at the beginning of the show is it, it, it gives for a good sort of scary bad villain for the beginning of the show, which I guess all science fiction shows eventually do need. Yeah. I I thought that they were presented as being frightening enough. And again, that, that line uh, about, you know, hopefully they'll do it in that order, I think kind of sets that up very well. Uh, My, my apprehension is that they would turn out to be, you know, the Kazon or uh, DS nine version of the Ferengi. Well, I think I think it's benefited that we don't see anything of them. And, you know, it's it's left in our mind to kind of develop what these characters are like. And, you know, I'll I'll spoil ahead a little. We'll get to see them eventually. And they do turn out to be as bad as they actually mentioned. So I don't think you'll be disappointed with them. But I like the setup initially that these are just crazed, insane people that are going to do horrible things if they ever catch the crew and i think in a western type formula or setting uh it is more more easy to set them up as being just as bad as what they are uh they're they're touted to be because you're looking at you know certain areas that are a little lawless and and it allows them to have a lot of uh leeway in how they're presented uh, and that, that's another thing that jumps out at me, again, just comparing it to DS9, is we, we came along into DS9 saying it started out as basically, uh, you know, the new sheriff coming into town with his son, kind of a little bit of a rifleman feeling to it and all of that. Uh, this is certainly a Western. Uh, I would my, – my gut feeling is we're going almost for a Magnificent Seven type feeling, uh, a group of disparate – uh, individuals with a moral compass that they try to hide to some extent, uh, facing you know unbeatable odds, and that's that's my. And the, la- the, the last time we got the Magnificent Seven in space, it was Battle Beyond the Stars, and I don't think that's a bad thing. 
No, no, I don't think it's a bad thing either. I think it's a, it's a fairly good premise to go with. Mm. Well, that was one of the things when you said you've not watched it, and knowing that one of my favorite films and one of your favorite films is The Outlaw Josie Wales, which is, has essentially the same premise, a Civil War guy who fought on the side that didn't win. And what does he do after that? Where does he go? What does he do? It's pretty much the same premise as The Outlaw Josie Wales. I would have been very surprised if you hadn't liked it at the very least, thought it was enjoyable. Oh, no, there's no question I liked it. Uh, the, the, the difference between Outlaw Josie Wales is that focuses on The Outlaw Josie Wales, whereas this seems to be more of an ensemble-type show. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing either, because Clint Eastwood can carry a two-hour movie fairly easily or at least he could at that point uh you know if the outlaw josie wales was a tv series i think it eventually would have become formulaic so i think having an ensemble cast is is a far better way to go with something like that but there is definitely a little bit of that feel to it uh and and you know it, it remains to be seen if uh if mal will turn out to be as uh as tough as josie wales was but so far, so good. What, but what? So the scene where he comes in at the end and just shoots what's in the head, shoots Dobson in the head. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, it, it. He he. He seems to be a very layered character. You know, he does seem to be very three dimensional, and and I I go back to that scene that I talked about with Jane, where he he basically called him out at the beginning, uh, and Jane backed down from him. And and I think he he uh, he has his own set of rules, and I don't think he's he's going to be cowed by anyone, including Dobson, who's you know basically the alliance policeman there. But also in that situation, he has no choice. This guy's holding a gun on his crew. Reavers are coming. Mal obviously clearly weighs up the situation in his head and goes, right, I need to get rid of this guy as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Bang. Yeah, and I think I'm if circumstances were different, he wouldn't have made that choice. Mm, that's uh, what would, I mean. He would have taken not, the... I'm sorry? He's not a guy who goes in guns blazing unless he has no choice. Exactly. Now, some I, people I have read that scene that. that Mal's a cold-blooded murderer, whereas I think, no, he, this guy's threatening his... They've got a, a clear and present danger coming up hot on their heels. He needs to resolve this situation quickly. And essentially what he does, though, is the way Jane would have handled it. And it's a very pragmatic way of doing it. It wasn't that he intended to kill this person. It was like, I need to save my crew. This guy is causing a threat. I'm going to take this threat out as quickly as possible so I can save my crew. And yeah, I, it, I always read it like pragmatic. That. And, but but it also shows him to be a total badass. Oh, yeah. And why the, 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 the controversy over that was, well, he's a bit of a murderer. No, he isn't. I didn't no, no, not that. at all. I did love as well when they chuck him out of the ship, Mal almost doesn't make it back through the doors. <laughs> no, no, just, just, I don't just, know if that was intentional. See, I would say he's not really a murderer because if you go to the scene before that where he's getting shot at by patients and all her goons, that he – he does not once he shoots the horse and traps patients underneath it he could have easily just killed her and taken the money and run and taken the goods and run but no he doesn't he said hmm. a deal was a deal he took the money he left her to to dig her way out under the horse and he was gone yeah yeah and he left her to her little well, world mm -hmm. being pragmatic he may need to do business with her again 
Mm-hmm. And and not a stupid man. And you know, he knew if he were to take her out, that would just cause more problems. So he he did the job despite the fact that she reneged on it, and he showed that he was the better man in the deal. So that was great. Now, uh, just from from the negative point of view, uh, you know how how. We've said, you know, having an unknown cast is a benefit to some extent because you don't have preconceived notions as to who these people are. Dobson was uh, on an episode of Seinfeld where he was Ramon the pool boy who wanted to hang out with Jerry all the time. Uh, and sadly, <laughs> as we were watching him, every time he was on screen, I kept, that kept coming to mind. Thankfully, I haven't seen that episode of Seinfeld, so that didn't, that didn't uh, come into mind, thankfully. I remember him from Beyond Buffy and Angel. <laughs> So that that was the only negative as far as casting went for me. Whereas whereas Ron Glass, who I've seen in countless episodes of Barney Miller, he was also in the remake of The Odd Couple. They did a uh, an all African American version of The Odd Couple with him and Demond Wilson, and uh, and and I remember that. But but for whatever reason, in this particular role, I didn't have flashbacks to that. Yeah, all right. Well, the only other thing I've got is Fox originally refused to wear this in widescreen so even though Whedon shot it in widescreen so there's one shot where he had to bring all the characters in a little bit so they'd fit on a 4 by 3 frame and you can clearly see on the widescreen version that, that Wash isn't holding anything when he's supposed to be steering the ship because they had to bring Alan Tudyuk back a bit so he fitted in the 4 by 3 that's inadvertently hilarious that. when you spot it for the first time that he's just sat there holding nothing at all See, I'm wondering, I'm assuming this is right at the advent of high-definition television sort of coming in, because I am i don't know exactly when that would. I know this came out prior to Enterprise, I think, which was one of the first shows that I remember actually being filmed, or at least one of the shows that I watched that was being filmed in HD. So, yeah, that the fact that they didn't show this in widescreen, yeah, that's disappointing, because... I think this that gives it a more epic scale. It gives it more of a cinematic type feel if it's shot in the sixteen point nine rather than the four by three. But uh, okay, are we going to rate it with dinosaurs? Sure. <laughs> well done, Ange. <laughs> We're going to rate it with dinosaurs. All right, go ahead, Andy. This was your review. Uh, we will call this episode "This Land." <laughs> Um, I, I, I think you've got from from what we've talked about. I think it's five. I think it's a perfect pilot. I think it does everything a pilot should do. It tells a story. It introduces the characters. I watched it. I watched it the other night with Ange, and I said after it finished watching it, damn, that was good. Ten years on, and I've watched it a couple of times. I think because I've got it on DVD as well. Um, I thought it was brilliant. So five, five shiny dinosaurs. You know, I really enjoyed it, but I'm going to hold off on giving it a five. I'm going to give a 4.5 because, and I don't know how you can get half a time. I'll give it four T-Rexes and one Velociraptor. So that's a (laughs) 4.5 because it it is a great, great introduction to the characters. The the only niggling thing I had was they didn't allow uh, River to be advanced in the same way the rest of the characters were, but the rest of the characters were so well done. You, You didn't have, you, you, 
automatically know what the motivations behind these characters are. They're all so well fleshed out and they all work together and you can see the interactions between all of them, you know, the relationships between them and their feelings of disgust between each other and their feelings of love between each other. It's, it's a really great show, but I think if I'm recalling, there might even be better shows than this. So I'm just going to go give it down a half step from what Andy did and give it a 4.5. It's time for the newcomer. How many quat lose? <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, as I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking more and more that this was kind of a cinematic experience. And I think that goes to what I was saying about having to really pay attention and not multitask as you're watching it. If you sat down in a movie theater and watched this pilot where all you had to do was look at the screen, unless you're one of these jerk-offs who sits on their phone in the movie theater. Um, Uh, I think it would be a truly rewarding experience. And for that reason, I see it as cinematic as opposed to the scope of the cinematography or anything like that. Um, I think the characters pay off. I think as long as you do watch it as you should watch it, uh, it's a truly rewarding experience it was an excellent show it made me want to watch a lot more and it made me sad in advance that there's so few episodes of this series i I think all of the characters have something going for them i don't think there was one character that was introduced where i think that they're superfluous uh, with the exception of the way river was portrayed in this but i have the benefit of of hindsight of knowing that that she will become a big star so i know her character is going to become more significant as this goes on so her lack of of screen time really didn't bother me as i watched this uh i think it's just an excellent show and and in the episodes that we have to come in the movie that we have to come uh, my goal, my hope is that they will live up to the level of this as opposed to surpass it because I'm not really sure as a TV episode that, that you can surpass it by very much. And even if you do make a better one, I think from a dinosaur point of view, I think I'm going to be content to say that it gets the same rating. So I'm giving this five Indominus Rexes <laughs> and, and I'm ready to roll with that. Awesome. Good. So I hope you're not well disappointed the that I wasn't more uh, more bubbly about it, Andy. No, no. I, 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 when you said you hadn't seen it, I was very, very surprised if you didn't like it, knowing the kind of things that you do like. Knowing so how, that's how big I am on the new Fantastic Four movie and all. Yeah, knowing that the new Fantastic Four, it won't be new by the time this comes out, so we've just dated it. You know, by, by the time this comes out, this has already gone to DVD and Blu-ray and already failed there as it's well. It's already in the so, discount yeah. bins. <laughs> yeah, it's you can pick it up in five dollar. It's probably on a it's probably on a three pack with the first two Fantastic Four films for like ten bucks at Walmart. So go pick it up. It's worth it. <laughs> no. Uh, obviously, no, this being the the first one, we don't have any feedback. And I don't know that we will, given how we're recording these. So just we just want to do it next time? Sure, let's do it next time. Next time on an all-new episode of Keep Flying, we're going to find out which one of us wasn't exactly burdened with an overabundance of schooling. It's the train job. All right. Well, looking forward to it. Um, you know, it, despite my feelings on Joss Whedon, I can't say negative things about this show. So I'm looking forward to, to covering all this stuff. It's it's good to get a rewatch of this.